This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today is the acclaimed writer and creator of some of the most indelible television series of the last two decades. Show me a hero, Generation Kill, and a show, The Wire, that transcended and transformed television. But his story begins long before he was canonized as one of the patron saints of TV's golden age. Prior to show running and show writing, he was a proper journalist who cut his teeth first at the Tatler, the high school newspaper of Bethesda Chevy Chase High School in suburban Maryland. Come on, you mighty barons. And eventually, <laughs> as a police reporter at the Baltimore Sun. His new series, co-created with longtime collaborator George Pelicanos, is The Juice, chronicling the rise of the porn industry in Times Square in the 1970s. Yes, that spot was once home to something more than just Guy Fieri Restaurants America. And this series tells that story, starring James Franco, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and a slew of remarkable talents. Gary Carr. Wow. Just wow. It premieres this Sunday, September 10th, 9pm Eastern, on HBO. We welcome back a man who proudly calls himself the PBS of HBO, <laughs> hailing from Baltimore, Maryland, or Bodymore, Murderland. Either way, it's the Liverpool of America. The one and only... Mr. David Simon. That's the best intro I've had in two days, three days. That's excellent. My you work killed here, it dead. My work here is done. We're having a Guinness. Not quite up to David's liking because he's just come back from Ireland. No, you've done pretty well here. I'm not drinking Guinness out of a can and it's America, so I'm very happy. <laughs> we sit here on the eve of the release of your latest series, which we'll talk about in a second. But when you've already made The Wire a television show that's been compared to a great Victorian novel. It's right up there with the likes of MASH, Cheers, Lost. With that achievement already in the David Simon trophy room, you've essentially already won a World Cup with one of the greatest performances the tournament's ever seen before. <laughs> does, that, does that relieve you of some of the stress when you're poised to release a new series into the world? I truly don't give a shit anymore. You know, I'm, I'm in, I've reached that point where there are no shits left to be given. And now it's just if like I'm telling you a story, it's because I think you need to know the story. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. You've answered pretty well every question I was poised to ask you. And how's that feel to have reached that moment in life when you have no more shit? I'm get? just I'm just anticipating where you wanted it to go, and now I've landed it there, haven't I? <sighs> Let's just sit here for half an hour and drink this beer. <laughs> Excellent. You've reached the state Excellent. of Zen to which we all aspire. So let's just talk about the juice. Sure, why not? S Sunday night. You knew, and I'll say so myself, quite extraordinary series about the origins of the flesh business on HBO. The show's title comes from New York slang for 42nd Street, follows a time in the early 70s when a motley crew of entrepreneurial pioneers dragged the pornography business out of the smutty brown paper bag, transforming it into a wide-open, booming industry. It's a remarkable show to watch. 
some classic David Simon textured human storytelling. Lot of mood scenes, awful lot of cigarettes, huge period car budget, <laughs> and every goddamn last piece of awful wallpaper that you're able to track down in America, I believe. Yeah, that was brilliant stage direction, wasn't it? But what made you think this theme, this time, this place is what the world needs to think about right now? You know, we hadn't done very much on gender politics, and we hadn't done much on misogyny. And after this last election, if you watched what happened, not just to Hillary Clinton, but to every woman who tried to exert an opinion in the public domain, I mean, if you, if you know any female journalists or essayists or, or novelists who tried to express themselves publicly, and then you look at what lands on them, in the comment section, on Twitter, in all of the social media. It's astonishing the way that we've learned to talk about and to women, even if you call it anonymously. Uh, the way men are talking to women now, you can't tell me that it doesn't have to do with the last 50 years of pornography, of a culture of misogyny and exploitation that has become part of the way that men view women and, and part of the way in which we're sort of expressed sexually. It's pretty incredible. And so I feel like at this particular moment, although it's sort of never talked about, it's sort of like, well, that's unseemly. Let's not talk about that. It might be time to do a reflection on where the last 50 years of the sex trade and sex work and pornography has taken us. So you decided to travel back up the river to the source as you identified it, the source <laughs> of objectification, and you well, tracked it down wait, wait, two times whoa, square. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, come on. 15 minutes after the French guy, was Bullock or whatever his name was, invented the camera, he was running down the streets of Paris like looking for Parisian prostitutes to take their clothes off. Times Square didn't invent porn. They didn't invent prostitution, obviously. But there came a moment where American culture decided we were going to keep this street legal and we were not going to keep it in the paper bag. And from that moment, you now have a multi-billion dollar industry that has not only become an economic engine – it's transformed the culture. I mean, you know, we don't sell beer or Lincoln Continentals or, or blue jeans without using some of the tropes of pornography. It has totally affected the way men view women and, and the way women uh, know they're viewed. It's ingrained in the culture now. So it seemed like a time, it seemed like there might be something here to chase. It's a, it's a masterly retelling. You, you, you create in painstaking detail an incredible world. Why are fans... Method Man is back in this world. <laughs> Maggie Gyllenhaal, masterful in this world. James Franco plays twins. Believe an Emmy awaits just for his moustache game. He's great. Oh. Just on the moustache game alone. Yeah. I mean, woof, have, yeah. A, have a category. He's over your shoulder right there. Well, the truth is, like, playing twins, he wanted no cheap help. He wanted, like, no, don't give one of them a scar. No, don't shave the moustache on one. I'm going to do this with acting. And he has. I mean, it's, I think it's beautiful work. Oh, there's a lot of sex. Is there? A ton of both breasts and male members. But I should say, the sex is not very sexy. Thank you. Which I'm guessing is completely intentional. I read that you said about the porn scenes, your goal was to not shoot sex scenes, but to shoot the shooting of sex scenes. That's correct. We were very careful not to be prurient or puritan about it. We wanted to be blunt. You know, we didn't want to cheat and be like, oh, we'll just allude to what pornography or prostitution is. 
No, I mean that at that point you start you're you're on the road to Pretty Woman at that point. Now we wanted it to be blunt about what was being transacted here, what was being commodified. And at the same time, we don't want the camera to linger. We're always aware of that guy who sits down at 8.50 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you know, wearing only a towel, ready to watch his HBO show, and, you know, screw that guy. The last thing we want is to make a television show for him. We were intent on ruining porn to the possibility that anybody can ruin porn. We felt like we would try to be those guys. At the same time, we laughed last time you were on the show. The hit television today needs one of, or even more than one, of dragons, zombies, or nudity. Was Juice, in a way, your compromise of giving us the gangsters, the pimps, the whores, the sex scenes, the nudity, the violence that modern accessible hit television dra- has? No dragons. I held off. You did. That's for the yeah, sequel. No dragons. For the sequel, the Franco twins riding in. Two times to go on the no dragon. Dragons. I don't want a spoiler alert, people. No dragons. But you did so giving yourself the opportunity to do your David Simon thing and look at the meta issues, capitalism, corruption, police yeah. corruption, anarchy, misogyny, and the abuse of women. People are going to come in and go, oh, he finally caved in. He gave us, he did a sex show. He's the piece before this was about federal housing policy. The piece after this is going to be about legislating on Capitol Hill, which is the broken part of U.S. government. So, yeah... You know, I'm the captain of exploitation. Legislating on Capitol Hill with zombies, right? Mm, Well, in a matter of speaking, yes. (laughs) But purchased zombies. Purchased zombies, I will say. Looking at your show, every scene, it's just got the pacing, the aesthetic, classic golden age 1970s cinema. French Connection, Mean Streets. Taxi Driver, Pelham 123. I mean, I think of you as a writer who's super realist. You write what you know. You know, interior, courtroom, daytime, exterior, street corner, night. Did you have to flex a different writing muscle for a period piece like this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was 11 in 1971. So uh, if I recall correctly, I was trying to find my dad's Playboy magazine. Yeah, I was was the equivalent of the man in the towel. Yeah, that was like there was no internet. It wasn't at your fingertips. Sex was a mystery, and, and even if you managed to steal Dad's Playboy, there wasn't enough clues in there to, to let you off the hook. This was acquiring something, a world. You know, I don't remember the New York of this period, but we do have all that filmic library that you just cited. You know, George Pelicanos, my partner on this, he loves that stuff, and, and I do too. I mean, it's some of the most magical filmmaking, everything from Report to the Commissioner, Taking a Pelham 123, the original, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver. There's something about it. It was some of the finest assessment of urban America ever done. Our intention, uh, and we communicated this to Michelle McLaren, who directed a wonderful pilot and created our template for us, was, can this be a film that somehow got lost in a vault and somebody found it, but it was shot in 1971? And I think she got as close as you humanly could. I mean, I'm really proud of the piece. There's a film aesthetic here that's important the delivery of the story. So you immersed yourself in those films. That was the... I always loved them, but I, I yeah, we watched a ton of them. Everything. Across 110th Street, all the black exploitation stuff of the early 70s. It's so magical. It's so beautiful. That was a point at which people didn't think New York was going to be able to save itself. That we were headed for some sort of urban apocalypse. It was a period in which you could be hyperbolic like Escape from New York, Carpenter's Escape from New York. And it felt like well, yeah, you know, maximum security prison, 
Manhattan? Yeah, no, I see us going there. Like it, it was actually plausible. <laughs> so you look around now and like it, it seems incredibly naive because of course the thirty year run up on Wall Street was what do we do with the money? Oh I know, let's let's rebuild Manhattan and then some of the outer boroughs. And now I mean I come from a city where there uh, there's about two hundred forty murders right now in Baltimore. There's 170 in New York. You know how much larger New York is than Baltimore? There's something there that says New York had a completely different future from the rest of urban America. But nobody knew that in 71. No one. And by the way, I was watching Escape from New York. I'm just listening to you. I realized Snake Plissken? Yeah, when I saw that, that was like, I was watching Lower Parts. I want to move to that city. That was the, I'm not so sure about that. that yeah. is one of I the, will not lose myself in nostalgia for the old, oh, <laughs> if we can only get Disney out of New York, 42nd Street could go back to what it was. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of human pain there. But you can take Guy Fieri. I, I, did, I, <laughs> the, I, did, I did adore the score. I really did. I, and I want to know how you bait that into the show, that sound of 1970s New York, that mix of funk, salsa, street hustle. It comes out of car radios, yeah. bury it in coffee shop, background music, bar jukeboxes, every scene. It's a subtle piece of soundscaping. It is. It's, it's magnificent. And basically, it's easy for us because whenever George Pelicanos walks into the room, that shit follows him. He'll walk into the room and like, damn, Curtis Mayfield, how'd you make that happen? You know, wherever he walks around in the world. Funk and soul. It just emanates and, out of him. But you, yeah. do, you do it all the time. I mean, you, you integrate some of the best soundtracks in the game. Body of an American by the Pogues at McNulty's funeral scene. The montage in Show Me a Hero during which Springsteen's Hungry Heart plays throughout. I mean, can you talk about the marriage of music and visuals? Because you come from journalism, David, a world that's all ink and paper. What's the process through which you integrate sound I, into your work? I was a film fan and a music fan, and so is George. The effect that some of this stuff has on us, there's a simple poetry to it. And it's not as if I can direct. I'm usually quite content to stand behind the director and look through the monitor, knowing that like I can't add the things that a great director can. But I know when it's going awry. I know when I'm not feeling it. So like I can basically prevent, I can play a prevent defense of we're not getting it. How we get it, that's why I hired you. You know, I can do that with a director. And I can do that with a music supervisor. And George can as well. And so what we're going for is something that's in our heads that comes from a lot of years of loving film that has nothing to do with film school. or It's just all storytelling. And there was something about, even though we both came out of prose, uh, there was such great affection for these moments in particularly American film, but also, you know, just film in general, where you would see the power that song and sound and image can drive. You know, it's just incredible. Does one come to you now when you're thinking that? Second season of The Wire, where on the, la- the final montage we used a Steve Roll piece called I Feel All Right. There's something so punk and surly about his his sensibility of, okay, I'm forgotten. I'm the forgotten person in this narrative. I'm the forgotten person in this world. You've written me off, but I'll be okay. There was something so punk-ass perfect about his tone that when we put it up against those stevedores who were being marginalized, it was poetry. I love what you were saying about you know when you're not feeling it. You bring that outsider ethos to television making. 
Modern television is formulaic. Franchises are meant to follow patterns. And, and it works. But you say... You That's told why they me, have an audience. You told me you <laughs> hate shows where you can, what you call, see the stitchings. And you said that if you learn how to make television the right way, then you're broken for making television the wrong way. Right. How did you make the juice the wrong way? There it was kind of different in that you had to walk away from the things that television will sell you without even thinking, which is if the product is sex and the product in the deuce is sex, it's flesh, and if TV and our culture is so good at selling sex, then I have to walk away from the idea that any moment of nudity or sexuality is going to sell you on this piece. I'm going to deny that to you. I'm not going to deny you nudity because I'm going to be blunt about it. If I'm on a porn set, I'm more interested in how these characters divide up the food run, you know, who gets what sandwich, than I am in them fucking. And that, at the moment that I start to indulge myself in the exploitive process of exhibition, I'm lost. I've forgotten why I was telling the story in the first place. So the trick is, I'm here now, and fuck your expectations. I have to basically find out who these people are and where, where they can be revealed as people. And so I can probably do more business with them in between the shots of porn than I can with the actual porn. It's that old investigative journalist instinct that you have. Follow the sandwich. Follow the sandwich. <sighs> as, many, as many a great investigative reporter have said. I'm interested in character and how you develop it. We had Matt Weiner of Mad Men on our show and he told us that at the outset, he always goes into the writer's room and demand that everyone in it, quote, take the risk of doing the extreme thing, the embarrassing thing, the thing that's in their subconscious. What instructions do you give your collaborators before you mind meld? The rule when we're doing, because I'm sort of of the realist school, whatever that is, either this happened in this world that we've created, in this universe, or it could have happened and maybe it did happen, it was rumored to have happened, or it didn't happen, but we know from all of the forces involved and all of the chronology and all of the research we've done, it could have happened to this character. And if you can't answer affirmatively to one of those, then we can't do it. So I'm going the opposite way. I'm going like, no, no, no. We know the history of porn in New York. We know what happened when, 1971, 72. We know that this was plausible. That isn't plausible. We know where the money went. We know who would have been involved, who wouldn't have been involved. Stay within that parameter. I'm much more interested in arguing the reality, even if it's a fictional show. So that can be crippling, dramatically. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> and so as a realist, in this era of dragon zombie vampire dominance, you make shows about racial segregation, about the reconstruction of musical communities after natural devastation, about the fight to build low-income scattered site housing, the Capitol Hill process. You revel in ordinary. You revel. Ordinary? In ordinary. Yeah. Quotidian <laughs> bullshit. Ordinary.com. Uh, Quotidia. Quotidia. TV that should <laughs> never have made its way onto the television set. That's the best kind of TV for me. This shouldn't have been a television show. If you say that about something I've written, I'm like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Do, do you, in other aspects of your life, do you take pleasure in getting into fights with one hand behind your back? Is that just who you are? Yes. I like fighting. I like arguing. 
I don't consider arguing uh, until somebody gets ad hominem or, or gets like vicious about in some sort of weird personal way, unless somebody gets emotional. Arguing ideas, if it follows the path of clean rhetoric, I love an argument. I'll argue for hours on like, yes, that's true, but also this, and here's another fact. And, you know, and a, a guy comes back to me, th- that kind of argument will often change or ameliorate my viewpoints. There's very little of that left in the world. There's very few people who are rigorous about their rhetoric. I mean, our entire political culture exists on ad hominem and hyperbole. So, like, there's a lot of bad arguments to be had. And I'm happy to end those with, you're blocked, go fuck yourself. But there, whenever you get in a good argument, that's like, oh, this is tasty. And by the way, I may end up, keep it up, because I may end up being convinced of something you're saying. But there's precious little of it. You told me something beautiful before we came on air. You told me that you like Ireland because the ethos there is to, as you take a swig of Guinness, hate plausibly. Hate plausibly. Well, the Irish are famously literate. They are educated and always have been and in command of a language not their own. And then even better, they know how to carry a grudge across centuries. So if there's a difference between them and the Jews... It's negligible. They're basically the Jews of, of Europe. And so from the moment I landed in Ireland when I was 24, 25 years old, I was like, I get it. I get you guys. This is like this. I feel like I was a place I understood. In fact, I remember getting off the boat and going to a place in Wexford and within 20 minutes feeling like... You are uh, in your Jerusalem. Yeah. I felt like I was perfectly at home. Romantic diasporists. You know, <laughs> other than your own work, are there TV series that you look at and you say, yeah, I respect that? Oh, uh, there's one that I always champion because I think it never got its due. A Canadian show called Slings and Arrows. Did you ever see it? Uh, tonight, I'm going to see okay. it. It's okay. That, like, I love that you haven't seen it because you're obviously a fan of good narrative on television. And this is me doing the Lord's work. This was a show. It ran for three seasons. Uh, each season was six episodes. Very short. The conceit of it is it is a Shakespeare, basically a repertory company, in Toronto. And they're, each season they're producing a play. About uh, police corruption and misogyny. <laughs> no. A Shakespearean play. So, yeah, maybe. But, like, <laughs> you know, maybe. But I haven't read all my Shakespeare lately. <laughs> You know, I just, I may have missed that. Shakespeare is also very meta. Yeah, I, I may have missed that Shakespeare, you know. Uh, but uh, like one, one season they do Macbeth, one season they do Hamlet, one season they do Lear. The brilliance of the piece is that what's going on in the play is going on backstage. So if like Hamlet's the play, they're like running Hamlet backstage. Like the old artistic director of the theater is haunting the new artistic director and, he, and he's a ghost. <laughs> and he's basically saying, avenge me, uh, you know, avenge my work. It's like the meta of it. It's magnificent writing. It's, it's writing that makes me completely envious. It's very smart. And it never got its due because it came from Canada. Did you ever watch Gamora on Sunday? Yes, Gamora is very good. Oh, I think it's the single greatest non-David Simon production I've watched in the last Gamora 12 months. Gamora is very good. Television is made by David Simon. Yeah, no, very good, very good television. But like, I knew you'd know Gamora, but you don't know Slings and Arrows. I've got to say, when we've discovered everything, what more is there to live? Then we will have no more shits left to give. When I think about you, 
I think about something that you often say. You said last time you were here Soon with me. Soon we'll be dead. You, oh, that, please, God, that's true. That's, that's my motto. Soon oh, we'll be dead. I love it. I love it. Why? Soon we'll be dead. Oh, why Come do on. Yeah. Green light this and give me $60 million because soon we'll be dead. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have punctuated so many pleas. It's the ultimate to leverage. Network, to network execs with soon we'll be dead. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Soon we'll be dead. It's the ultimate leverage. Yeah. It's the only leverage I've got. But the, the, you've said to me the wire is descent. I want to know, does it annoy you, really, that many people who love it love the entertainment value? You know, they rank their favorite seasons. They debate whether Omar is cooler than Stringer. Yeah. If Omar went up against a dragon, who would win? Yeah. yeah I mean, that shit. And know. they don't derive the social message or the need for activism on the back of it. No. Nope. Yeah, what are you going to do with those people? What are you going to do with them? Hunt them down. Hunt them down. I, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, like, listen, the world's going one way, people going another. world's going one way, people are going another. I have to say, we live in an age of Donald Trump. My country has gone right into the shitter. My governance is that of viciousness and incompetence. And I don't think the American populace is becoming more educated and more aware. I think we're going the opposite direction. But I think What does it drive you to do, David? I mean, my, my favorite First World War poet, Wilfred Owen, once said, all the poet can do is warn. Do you relate to that? This is all I know how to do is tell stories. That's all. I, it's all I knew how to do when I was a reporter. It's all I know how to do now. So, like... The moment where I have to do something else is a wasted moment. I only know how to do this. It's all I've trained for. It's all I've attended to. What are you going to do? Do you feel more compelled now, the darkness that we've all descended into? Does it, does I'm make, becoming does it more feel- blunt. I'm becoming more blunt. You know, I find myself in my daily speech, in my daily demeanor, uh, my political stances, uh, becoming angrier because of what's happening to my country. I try not to let that bleed over into my characterizations when I'm writing because at some point, if a character were to speak to you on screen as I'm speaking to you now, it would be terrible drama. But do you feel a need to make things that are more urgent, more contemporary, more now? No, because sometimes by looking back, you can nail the present by looking at the past. The Yonkers piece, Show Me Hero, was everything about our current racial dynamic about the hypersegregation that defines my country. But if you'd have addressed it now, if you'd have done something about, for example, you know, Charlottesville, it's too fraud. It's too, it's too, you go back and you, 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 you walk into the obscure moment of Yonkers in 1988 and what was about to happen with building a few hundred units of public housing there. And all of a sudden people can take a breath and absorb it in a different way. If they're willing. On the other hand, if they're basically going, Yonkers, 1988, I don't, I don't give a damn, then you lost them anyway. But there is something to be said by walking away from the immediate and going back and taking a breath in some other realm and then bringing it forward and saying, see? Show me here is still going on all over Westchester. Oh, exactly. The next town up. In fact, one of the guys they thought of giving HUD to, I mean, they gave it to Carson, so it's not as if they didn't butcher it. In a, in, a, in a fresh and wonderful way. But the guy they were thinking of giving it to is the guy who's fighting the battle in Tarrytown and in Mount Vernon and elsewhere. Like, we didn't learn anything, so we're going to fight the same stupid battle of us against them and bleed ourselves dry instead of commit to a shared future. You once told me I'm from a different planet called journalism. It's yeah. what you did. I mean, your career journey and your 30s. That's what I trained for. 
you changed your identity, you were a police reporter, you put in the grind, you wrote your books, Homicide the Corner, you were able to learn a whole new set of skills within television. But there's a current political reality. Does it make the journalist inside of David Simon wish that you could jump back into the news game, compete alongside against the David Farenthold's, the Maggie Habermans? They're doing good work. I'm actually proud of mainstream media for, after I think failing to be sufficiently discerning about the new forces of, that were arrayed against truth in the last election cycle and becoming lost in sort of either or or tit for tat journalism that was no longer effective against that level of hyperbole and mendacity. I'm proud of journalism for post-election finally sort of picking itself up by its hind legs and saying, you know what, you lie to us on this scale and we have to fight. And I think if you look at, not all of it, but so, uh, which a good, bi- which a good chunk, well, you know, certainly Fahrenheit, Haberman, there are many other people for uh, ProPublica and Mother Jones. and You look at what's coming out now, whether or not people are conditioned to accepting lies or whether they're even listening anymore, is an open question. I think the American populace right now is at its most undereducated and alienated to the point where facts may not matter. But to the extent that any people are searching for facts, I think mainstream media, the Times, the Post, these other outlets that are now demanding that facts prevail on a daily basis and being belligerent about it, I think in a a way, mainstream media has solved the existential crisis they had going into the election. It's like, we know what we're here for. We know where we have to stand and fight. Not just for us, but for for the republic. So, yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that's like, it must be exhilarating on one level. Not exhilarating in the sense that they still haven't solved the revenue stream problem, post-digital. Huge problem. Huge problem. But at least everyone goes to work at the New York Times and the Washington Post right now and half a dozen other places knowing why they get up in the morning. Yeah, I'd love to have a taste of that. It was some of the most fun I had as a grown-up was being a newspaper reporter. But at the same time, you know, HBO's given me this platform to argue politics in a different way and to be a, do it as a dramatist. And it's a weird thing, which is that on a badly watched show that I do, a million and a half people watch it in a given week, you know, on something that has a terrible rating in terms of television. When you consider that a nonfiction narrative, a book, if it sells 100,000 copies, is a bestseller. It's a huge book. Right, it's a huge bestseller. The economy of scale is so different that, like, I'm sorry, this is a crack pipe that I can't walk away from right now. So, There is one way that you've remained a great writer, I believe. You know, and within the television industry, is a great memo writer, David Simon. To get HBO on board with your first series, you famously wrote what you called a begging-ass memo. Begging-ass? Yeah, to program bosses. President of HBO said he's quit with the incendiary memo. (laughs) I think he puts as much into those written pleas as he does into writing. They don't work as much anymore. They don't. Like the uh, the first round, the first few. Yeah. By the time I managed to get The Wire renewed for season four and season five, because it was canceled twice, I think I'd shot my bolt with most HBO executives. They were like, they saw it coming. Saw, at this they, point. Yeah. It's so the Simon memo. We've got, we got a young audience listening to this. Can you describe the art and strategy behind the right way to write begging-ass memos in the workplace? 
First, you appeal to people's morality, which is exhilarating if you work in the entertainment industry because nobody's ever speaking in those terms. So the idea that, like, by renewing this show, God and the Republic are in your hands. Now you've got their attention because a moment ago they just thought they were just a couple of <laughs> schmucks, you know, with offices on Wilshire Boulevard. And then the next thing you do is say, and you will get credit for it, if not here, then in the afterlife. Now you've got their attention. And then finally you explain how somehow this will reward them down the road with DVD sales or future loyalty from audience and commitment. Oh, twin tier, loftiness and yeah. pragmatic. Right. And then you wrap your arms around their legs and you say, please, please, I'll do your babysitting and I'll clean your windows. And, you know. and I'll give you my recipe for lemon meringue pie. That's right. To wrap this up, and in honor of Jewish New Year, talking about morality, which is fast approaching, I want to ask you to tell a story that you told me that I can't stop thinking about. Can you just tell us your Mike Epstein, Washington senator story? It's a great end of Jewish okay. New Year story. Okay. I adore Rosh Hashanah. it. I'm giving you my, yeah. base, my oh, Mike Epstein Oh, look at you. have a Mike Epstein card. card. Look at him. Beautiful left-handed swing. <sighs> Michael Peter Epstein. Are you listening, Mike? Are you out there? You out there in Denver? So when we talked about this before, had I done the story for Sports you Illustrated? You have not. You are, but you've you seen it since to, then. I've seen the story. Okay. I finally convinced him. So when I was about 10 years old, I have a memory of praying that Mike Epstein would hit a home run with the bases loaded. He played for the Washington Senators, my home baseball team. Who you adored. I believed that it was on opening day, and it was against a great pitcher named Vita Blue. It was a magnificent pitcher. A legend. For the, yeah, legend. I prayed, and I said, dear God, if you let Mike Epstein, my favorite player, super Jew, a Jewish power-hitting first baseman, what are the chances? If you let him hit this home run, I will never skip Hebrew school for the rest of my natural days. Crack, home run. This is what I know is true. This is the memory I have that is so specific. My arms are raised. I am in the boys' bathroom of Rock Creek Forest Elementary. I am looking in the oxidized mirror of the lower wing bathroom, and I am jumping up and down cheering at this home run. And I look at my face, and I realize what I have just promised. Like Cat Stevens. Is that what happened to him? Yeah, he was going to drown in the ocean. And he said, God, if you save me, I'll give you my life. I'll dedicate my life to you in a way. And he did. But you decided and, to and go another has, route. He, not an album as good as the first two ever <laughs> since. I was like, oh, my God, what have I promised? For, so for like two, three weeks, I didn't skip Hebrew school. And then it was two, three weeks. Like, you know, God's really not going to hold me to that insanity. So I started skipping Hebrew school. God's Boom. Done. Boom. Old Testament God he does not fuck around. You know, the next thing I know, Mike Epstein's traded to the Oakland A's. Your favorite player, gone. Okay, I'm like, yeah, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that God's intervened. It's just unlucky. The next thing I know, end of the season, the entire Washington Senators baseball team picks up and moves to Texas and becomes the Texas Rangers. Clearly, the Old Testament God is not fucking around. The smiter. The smiter. Yeah. He is. He, there has been some smiting going He's on. He's a Baltimore Orioles fan. So, like, I know this in my heart. I did this. I caused this. Yeah. I caused this. Of course this. you did. I go to college. I, I stopped rooting for baseball. This is my team's gone. I go to the Baltimore Sun in 1983. I get a job there. They win the World Series. Literally, like, I'm just moving into my place. And they're beating the, the Phillies for the world's last World Series. And then from then on... It's like a desert for the Baltimore. It's like 
And now anything I touch baseball-wise is being destroyed because I have messed with Yahweh. Mike Messina, your fault. Uh, yeah, everything. The Yankees. Everything. The, the kid with the mayor with the glove, yeah. with, the, with the fly ball. Yeah. and I am responsible for all of this. Yeah. Brady Anderson the, getting off the steroids. Oh your fault. God. Everything, everything, everything. So, you know, at some point, team comes back to Washington. They can't win. They can't win. Orioles can't win. And I realize what I need to do. Is Mike Epstein still alive? Where is this guy? He and I got to get right with God. Now, why does Mike Epstein have to get right with God? And I'll tell you. I, I know you were ready to ask, and I will tell you. He had 20 home runs that year. I caused one of the 20. I made that guy, yeah. that, 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 that lunch meat pitcher, hang a curveball. Inarguable. So if he has 19 home runs that year instead of 20, does he get traded to Oakland to protect Reggie Jackson in the lineup batting fourth? 19, maybe they look down the depth chart, they go 19, nah, 20. Guy's got 20 home runs. Let's hire this guy. So he gets traded to Oakland. He gets a World Series ring the yep. next year for Oakland, yep. for the A's. So like, he's benefited too from my little <laughs> pact with God. So I, anyway, I find him. He's, he's, he's living out in Denver. You know, he's running a batting school, very noted batting school with his son. And he listens to me on the phone, and he says, are you insane? And I'm like, no. And he goes, well, think about it. This is a little bit egotistical that you caused all – I go – It's an arguable I, I'm like, are you a Jew or not? Because, like, we know yep. what the Old Testament God can do. When, you know, Tower of Babel, would, baby. Yeah, exactly. Just exactly. ask Lot's wife. Lot's wife. Lot's wife. Think about Lot's wife yeah. for a moment. Yeah, please. So – Think about that I, he, every says, day. What, he says, what do you want me to do? I say, you and I, you have to come over for Passover, for Pesach Seder. We have to eat the bread of affliction, the matzah. We have to march our way out of this world, Pharaoh's slavery and into, out of the wilderness of Sinai and into the promised land. You and I have to do this together. You have to come to my family's <laughs> Seder. <laughs> and incredibly, the guy goes, you're insane, but okay, I'll do it. At which point, and this is true, this was like five years earlier, my brother-in-law had a boating accident, sadly, and he was, um, he was fatally injured. I mean, he, he lingered for a while, but he, he was fatally injured with a brain injury. And it happened like a, three weeks before Passover. So I had to call Mr. Epstein back and say, listen, it can't happen this year. My family's really distraught. We're, we're, not, we're not in any position. Five years later, I tell this story to an editor at Sports Illustrated. He says, you got to get him to do something. we got to do this story. So I called Mike Epstein back. At this point, he's like, it's you again? You know, I'm like, no, no, no. This time I'm really serious. And it was around Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Kol Nidre. Yeah. All vows. Yeah. So Most serious day of the year yeah, for yeah. forgiveness. Got to ask for forgiveness. Mike, you got to come east. we got to go to a Washington Nationals game together. we got to go and pray to God for forgiveness. He's like, what do I have to forgive? I said, hey, hey, 19 home runs? Come on, come on, come on. Look at that World Series ring. Think about what I did for you. So he's laughing. He's like rolling his eyes, but we go. He comes back. They're going to have Mike Epstein night at the stadium in Washington. They're going to have Mike Epstein night. They have a jersey and a hat with like the W. It's like a, it's a shin. It's the Hebrew letter. Like the, <laughs> they literally are like going all out for Mike Epstein because they want to get this curse off them. Yeah. Game is rained out. Rained out. Biblical flood. Biblical flood. Mike Epstein's staring at the tarp. We're in the dugout yeah. uh, that night. He goes, 
God is really pissed off at you, Simon. You know, God is really pissed off at you. So, like, Mike Epstein night is rained out. The next night, knowing that God is still angry, we go, I pray my balls off. I am kol nidraying like nobody's business. I am throwing prayer, petitional prayer, like I've never thrown it in my life. Epstein's standing beside me at this synagogue outside of Washington. He knows the liturgy. He's doing his part. We get outside. He goes, you think it took? I'm like, I don't know. So, you know, we go out. The next day, the next day, Papelbon throws that punch at Bryce Harper yep. in the dugout. How did it kill me? Which was pretty much God's saying, I'm not done with you yet. So, I, I, like, at this point, the Orioles and the Nationals, neither team has now pulled it out yet. I don't know what else to do. I've, I've offered up a perfect sacrifice, a perfect sacrificial lamb. I made Mike Epstein travel from Denver <sighs> all the way to Washington. We tasted of affliction. We asked for forgiveness. God, and I'm speaking to you, Yahweh. He listens. Let my, she listens. Let my, she. She listens. Let my people go. Let my people go. I can just see baseball bats been turned into asps the next time that you are in that dugout. I've got to tell you, I'm going to be listening to this podcast and this podcast only, all Yom Kippur, and I suggest you <laughs> listeners do the same. I've got to say, it is a joy to be with you, David Summon. It really is a man who's achieved such success without appearing to indulge in too many of the trappings, the private jet, the helipad. You famously <laughs> avoid Hollywood. You've transformed yourself, though, professionally without transforming yourself from a core value perspective, I've got to ask you to wrap out, what would newspaperman David Simon, 22-year-old David Simon, think of 57-year-old David Simon? What a dick. (laughs) There you have it. (laughs) And what would David Simon, 57-year-old David Simon, say to 22-year-old David Simon if you met? I'll get over it. (laughs) Would you ask him to join the writer's room? No. (laughs) No. Keep doing what you're doing. We'll talk in about eight, nine years. Oh, David Simon uses hate plausibly on young David Simon. It's an honor and a joy to be with you. <laughs> you are an inspiration for so many great friends of our pod. The Juice premieres on Sunday, September 10th, 9 p.m. This Sunday, if you're listening and watching with a towel around your thighs, it's on HBO. We wish you a happy new year. Shana Tova, health, happiness. The Shana Tova. And to all of you out there, Remember, for the sake of humanity, hate plausibly. Hate plausibly. (laughs) Godspeed.